So, I posted about Blandly Handsome Men a few weeks ago. Yeah. I'm not going to go into details on the origins of that. You can... I like the disclaimers, though, that you're giving now. Yeah. Like... Yeah. I, you have to. <laughs> I know. I get more responses from those Blandly Handsome Men posts than I do from anything else I put on the internet. <laughs> I told Jordan, it will be, it will be both humiliating... And I guess funny. And when you have a hologram headstone. If that is like what I'm known for is blandly handsome men. Like here I am one day wanting to write, you know, a really great book. And instead like I put out a coffee table book of blandly handsome men with like corresponding essays. It's fine. Um, But you could, ooh, think about this. Team up with Annie Leibovitz. Yeah. And get some really great pictures done. Annie and Annie. I think I just realized, I'm going to keep this to myself. I think I have an idea. Okay. Copyright. You heard it here first. TM, <laughs> TM, TM, TM. TM this idea. Um, so I posted about Blaine Handsome Men. One of the men I put on there was Ted Danson. I put him on there as Sam Malone. Right. To which I did get some very horrifying responses of, who is this? What? Which, guys. That's a mistake. I don't want to be one of those people who's judgy, like, who's like, you've never heard of Cheers, but, like, really. There are a few cultural landmarks. Yeah. Where I think it's okay to have that opinion. Like, I don't want to shame people. But Cheers is one of those. <laughs> Cheers it's you, like get, a, you, get, you get Cheers, yeah. Seinfeld. Yeah. Like, there are things that, like, even if you have not really seen it, That's you, right. you definitely know what it is. That's right. Like, even until last year, I'd never seen Seinfeld. Sure. Now I've seen them all. I totally get it. Yep. But even before that, I knew who Jerry was. You were I familiar. Knew who Kramer you was. could name the four main characters. Absolutely. So, Ted Danton was on Cheers. Mm-hmm. The most important comedy of. The 90s? I think it set the tone. Of for the like, late 80s, early yeah, 90s. Yeah, it set the tone. It brought us Frasier. It, it set the tone for The Office. It gave us Frasier. Yeah, like... Yeah, in, in terms of influential... Yes. Yeah. I'll... Okay, so now, of course, aging Tan- Ted Danson, mm-hmm. still handsome. What's the show he's on now? The Good He's Place. on The Good Place, but he's on like a... Oh, is he still a, on that on detective show? One. Yeah. He was on CSI something. Yes, one of the spinoffs. Yeah. Okay, that's what I was thinking of. Well, yeah, so now he's on The Good Place. Here's what I love about Ted Danson. First of all, he still has some really great hair, and he's always got a good glasses game. Yeah. His glasses game is on point. I still find him handsome. Yes. And Kate and I, former bookseller Kate and I, got in this like text discussion because she was like, I love Ted Danson too, but I prefer him as Silver Fox Ted Danson. I was like, I don't care. Okay. He's handsome both. He's blandly yeah. handsome in both scenarios to me. Um, But... There is something about that Sam Malone character, and there's this really great scene in The Good Place, like in a recent episode. Do you watch that show? Yeah. I have not seen the second season. Okay. Well, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I love it. In a recent episode, Ted Danson is like in a bar, mm-hmm. so it's obviously paying homage to his Sam Malone yes. character, and he like throws a towel over his shoulder, <laughs> and I just got chills. It like, was just oh, there he is. Um, so there is something about Ted Danson. And I loved him as Sam Malone, and I also love him as I don't even know his name in this. And what is his in name? The good in place? the good place. I don't know. Does he have a real name? I don't even know. Yeah, I think he does. I don't remember. Well, whatever. Obviously, not iconic enough yet. <laughs> I watched it week to week when it was coming out, oh, and did so you? I have not seen it. It's been a while. In then. two years, yeah. But I just think he's one of those people who somehow made it. Do you yeah, know what I mean? I do. Um, you know who else made it? Weirdly, the guy from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Not, not Matthew Matthew Broderick. Right. We talked about this on Unpopular Opinions. Alan Ruck. Alan Ruck. 
Okay, because we got, uh, no, it was a Patreon comment. Oh, did we? Um, yes. Um, after we posted that on Popular Opinions, it was um, Annette Silvera, longtime listener. Okay. Uh, said, Alan Ruck, I totally agree. He kills it in whatever he does. So he is in this new Netflix show, Sierra Burgess is com- completely fine. That's Eleanor Alhart. That's Eleanor Alhart. Sierra Burgess is a loser. Guys, so <laughs> many things. Um, All these titles. But he's in that. And he pops up on screen, and every time he pops up on screen, I'm pleasantly delighted. Mm. And so that's how I feel about Ted Danson. Yeah. I have loved him since Three Men and a Baby. Like, who was that on that movie? I have no idea. What? I've seen it, but it's been a very, very long time. Look, it's on Hulu. You and Kelsey just watched Three Men and a Baby. What a delight. It's great. It's delightful. But I don't remember who's in it. Tom Selleck is in it. Okay. My mom's crush, which if you see pictures of of my dad... Like, oh. I have a type and my mother has a type. Oh. Listen, listen, I was, I follow Country Living on Instagram. They posted a picture of Burt Reynolds, RIP. And of course, Instagram does show you comments from yeah. people you know. Right. Before they show you other comments. So this picture of, it's a picture of like four different Burt Reynolds. Mm-hmm. Like, a, and it's like, which Burt Reynolds is your favorite? And I see my mother's comment, oh, A and C all the way, with like hard eye <laughs> Susie. Yeah, so Susie loved Tom Selleck and Burt Reynolds. And if you look at my dad, oh my God, that's who he is. That's so I good. I love everything about that. Meanwhile, it's just me and Ted. Meanwhile, I kind of think he's a handsome John Kerry. Ted Danson? Yeah. Yes. He could play John Kerry in a movie. I think he could. Ooh, get on that. TM, TM. Welcome to episode 188 of From the Front Porch, a collection of conversations on books, small business, and life in the South. My name is Chris Jensen, and I have a feeling I'm going to talk a lot this episode. And I'm Annie Jones, owner of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in beautiful downtown Thomasville, Georgia. So, much like that Patreon comment from our intro, today's episode topic comes to us from longtime listener Allison Parker. Um, She sent me an email a couple weeks ago um, with a very specific question, because she'd been listening to some back episodes of our show. Thanks, Allison. Yeah, we appreciate that. Also, she's lovely. She Mm -hmm. sends me the nicest emails. That's I like sending her my um, shelf subscription books. Yes. We, I think this is okay, we made an error on Allison's Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And she was delightful because guys, we're just a bunch of humans trying our yeah. best over here. And, try, try a new thing. And try a new thing sometimes may, means you make mistakes. Yep. And we made some mistakes with Allison's order and she was so nice and just so nice about it. And all I know is that there's currently an email in my inbox Sitting in my inbox from Allison, and I just know the he- the subject is Arnold Palmer slushies. Oh, oh that's <laughs> that sounds so good. Doesn't it sound so that's good? That's what I want. So, so anyway, so, this is thanks, Allison. Thanks, Allison. Um, you too can be featured on <laughs> from the front porch if you are extraordinarily nice to us, <laughs> apparently. Um, but thank you. Um, she'd been listening to some back episodes of the show, and we did some conversation about. Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, mm-hmm. and Ghost at a Watchman. That's right. And about how these two books in particular, because they were so big mm-hmm. and so mainstream, got people talking about the idea of canonicity. Okay. So not, and there are two very important definitions <laughs> of canon here. 
Um, there is the canon, right? Which is like all those books that we talk about that are important, yeah. like The Scarlet Letter and Little Women yeah. and... The great books the that great we studied books. in school. And those are important and those are good. Um, but what we're talking about here is more the idea of in-universe canon. Okay. What is considered canon or true or permanent, indelibly so, um, within the world of a given book mm-hmm. or a series. Um, we see this a lot in pop culture wars about stuff like Star Wars. Yes. Um, this has been a big subject in like um, nerd Twitter for the past few years because it turns out fans of Star Wars and comic books are terrible. <laughs> Um, and they got opinions. And they have opinions, <laughs> and they're not afraid to share them. Yeah. And so with the release of the new Star Wars movies, there are a bunch of people who are like, ah, no, this isn't canon. Right. Because it doesn't jibe with their idea of what this franchise was. Yes. Um, I think this happens a lot with, you used the correct term, like fandom. Fandom. Like when there's this really beloved right. thing. This property. Yes. Whether it's a comic book. Mm-hmm. I think I think lots of comic book fans might fall in that category. Yep. Or... Um, I think specifically of the world of Harry Potter or yeah. any anything that has this really devoted fan base. Right. I think that's often who we see get riled up. You get a fan base that has a very particular idea and interpretation of the thing that they love. Yeah. And they have an attachment to it, which is good. That's yeah. what every author wants and, on some level. Yeah, and I think for readers where we see this, and we'll talk about yeah. specifics, but... I wonder if it's the same types of conversations we get any time a book is turned into a movie. Yeah. And all of a sudden... That's what it is. Yeah. All of a sudden, readers, including people like myself, are Mm -hmm. like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is this what the author intended? Right. Um, Is is this true to the book? Right. Um, And I think... And so this is two... I think this is two related topics. Yes. There's the idea of like, when something new is released that then changes your reading of the earlier thing... And so J.K. Rowling's comments on Pottermore or on Twitter about like the background characters of Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are very angry about these. Yeah. And a lot of people don't care. Yeah. A lot of people really love them. Very few, yeah. actually. Not, not that many people really love yeah. these things. Not the ones that are talking um, about it anyway. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is what we're talking about here with adaptation. The mm-hmm. idea of like staying true to the source material. Yeah. Um, if you see the movie Crazy Rich Asians um, and notice how different it is from the book you still have the book. That's and right. you, watching the movie shouldn't change the way you read the book necessarily. Yeah. It does to a point, and I can talk about that too. Yeah. Um, you're always now probably going to be um, tainted by seeing those characters on screen, and that's yes. going to be the image you have of them now. Yeah, Like absolutely. me with the Harry Potter movies. Yeah, and I think, I think I very much used to be in this camp of, at least in terms of adaptations, uh-huh. The book is always better. Fidelity. Like, I definitely always fell in that category. Yeah. And then, interestingly, we... I was in a film society in college, and then we hosted film nights here yeah. at the bookshelf, and the woman who taught those classes really opened my eyes, and I think you and I have talked about it mm-hmm. enough, where I realized, oh, these are just totally different entities. Very different media. Yeah, and and a way to tell the story differently. Mm-hmm. And Crazy Rich Asians is a great example of that. I've seen a lot of people say that they prefer the movie, mm. which, by the way, humans are entitled to their opinion. Absolutely. And you can absolutely prefer one of those things over the other. Yes. But I think, yeah, Crazy Rich Asians is different from the book, but it's still true to the 
feeling. Yeah. I wanted, when I went to see Crazy Rich Asians, to feel like I was thrown into like a Great Gatsby situation. Right. And that's exactly how I felt watching the movie. Right. So I felt like this is totally true, even though there are some very different things that right. happen in the movie than, in ha- than happen in the book. So as I've gotten older, I guess, or, yeah. or maybe as I've read more or and interacted seen more, more yeah, I think I've realized there is something. Now, I've also seen some terrible movies, oh, yeah. by the way. But I've seen enough good adaptations mm-hmm. where I'm like, oh, it's not necessarily true that the book is always better. Is the book sometimes um, fuller or more, more rich with detail? Almost always. Yeah. But then there are some, like these people who prefer Crazy Rich Asians, the movie, mm-hmm. there are some cases where the movie really maybe even does more of a service to the story than the book might have yeah. done. Yeah. I think there are cases definitely where the movie kind of is able to strip away some of the yes. unimportant details that like work for the story the book is telling, but that do weigh the like main story down. And so if you're only trying to tell that main story, yeah, great. I um, mean, you can do that. And I think there are a bunch of wonderful book to film adaptations out there. Yeah. What we're talking about more though, I think is the first category. Yes. Um, and so let's start with Harry Potter. Okay. Um, I mentioned JK Rowling's Pottermore and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, revelations. I think the first and most famous of these is the revelation pre-Pottermore that she always thought of Dumbledore as being a gay man. Yes. And this sent people into an absolute fury. Yeah. Um, on all sides. Yes. Um, one, this is positive res- representation. Two, this is not positive representation because it's never outright stated in the book and adds nothing to his character. Three, this is some kind of like terrible monstrosity. Like all right. kinds of opinions on yes. here. Yes, so many um, opinions. I remember when that happened. And, and just re- reading the books again, watching the movies again. I watched the movies again last week. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not an important character detail. It's not. And I, I'll tell you how... And, and I'm not sure how I feel about it now. Yeah, I, I'll tell you how I felt initially. And I said this before we started recording. I don't follow J.K. Rowling on Twitter. Right. Um, I took the Pottermore quiz and then that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, As but, we all did. Yeah, yeah. But I... I think I've said before on this podcast, I don't always need a sequel. Yeah. I don't need, like, I'm excited about Big Little Lies, the show. Mm-hmm. I don't need it. The story ended. Yeah, like, the story ended. I I so wonder what they're going to do. Yeah, I do too. Like, I don't know. I'll be curious. Mm-hmm. I often, often, in fact, am disappointed by sequels. Yeah. So for me, I did wind up reading The Cursed Child, and I really did like it. I did too. But mostly, I left those characters as a reader, exactly where I wanted to leave them. I don't need more detail. I think there are some people who crave more detail about the minor characters, or even about somebody like Dumbledore who was a main character. They want to know more. I don't need, my imagination did that, right? right? Like my imagination did things. I think there was sadly similar uproar when um, Cursed Child became a stage production and Hermione was cast as an uh, African-American woman. Right. And African, African yeah, English, yeah, yeah, African English woman, African British woman, a, a black woman, yeah. But she, there was this kind of this uproar, and I remember thinking, well, who cares? Like, who right. cares? Um, and that's kind of how I felt about the Dumbledore thing. Yeah. Like, who cares? It doesn't add or take away. Right. It doesn't change your perception of this character. So this is an irrelevant detail. Yes, and I think J.K. Rowling just loves telling her readers more and I don't blame her for that and that's totally her prerogative and some of these things because I I don't follow them but I've read a few here and there like as I've looked something up it's like oh well here's that information it's all collected in a wiki now yeah um 
I have found some of them very interesting. Sure. And I'm like, what did happen to Teddy Lupin in year five? <laughs> like, you know, like, and that's fun to an extent. Does it change my enjoyment of the series? No. No. No, and I personally don't need it. So. I don't either. Yeah. Um, and and the, the, the thing with these is they're very easy to ignore. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they should mm-hmm. change your enjoyment of the series. You don't need to take J.K. Rowling's comments as, as canon. Right. Um, she did write it. Yes. But what is in the text of those books is what is the text of those books. That's certainly how I feel. That's how I feel too. Yeah. Um, I, I would be interested to talk to Jordan about this yeah. with like the legal aspect of that. Uh-huh. Because... Well, we've talked a lot. <laughs> this is, I, we're talking about constitutional conservatism here. <laughs> he and I have, t- have talked a lot about um, that in terms of To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. And we've talked about that on the podcast, like especially after we visited Monroeville. Right. And yes, after Ghost at a Watchman came out. And similarly, mm-hmm. right, Ghost at a Watchman, which is really a precursor, really a draft right. version right. of To Kill a Mockingbird. Which has been our, our repeated chorus yes, as we've talked guys, about this book. it's not a sequel. It's not a sequel. This was her draft, which... Then, if you read it as that, you realize just how genius it is. Right. That it's it's a shell of a book. It's like the acorn about to become the oak tree. Right. And Atticus Finch is significantly more more of a bigot. Right. In t- in Ghost at a Watchman than he is in To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. Part of that is as we have read To Kill a Mockingbird, we have really put Atticus on up a on a big pedestal, old pedestal. Perhaps even more than Harper Lee ever originally intended. Yes. Um. And this is. In large part, I think, due to Gregory Peck. Yeah, yes. Because that movie adaptation mm-hmm. is who a lot of us picture. There is a man that goes to our church who looks like Atticus, like Gregory Peck is Atticus <laughs> Finch, and I love it so much. Um, and already I like that man, mm-hmm. even though I know nothing about him right. because he looks like Atticus Finch. Um, but I read Ghost at a Watchman, and you and I have talked about this at length, and I felt no anger or animosity towards Atticus Finch because he felt real. Yeah. In Ghost at a Watchman... And he's a fictional character. Yeah, and he felt like a more flawed... Which I would argue he's flawed in To Kill a Mockingbird. He absolutely is. Um, He is a problematic character. Yes, but he's flawed in Ghost at a Watchman in a way that makes... If you're reading... If you grew up in the South, that feels like what it's really... What it was really like. Right. Um, And so... I never had an issue with it. Now, we can talk all day long about, did Harper Lee want that draft to be seen by the rest of us? I don't know. I don't know either. Um, Do I consider that version of Atticus Finch canon? I don't think I do. Yeah. But but I liked seeing what Harper Lee decided she wanted Atticus to be. It's an alternate take. Yes. And this is what, this is kind of the, the, the whole idea of canon. Which of these everything is alternate takes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And which of them do you take together as belonging to one thing? Mm -hmm. Um, There's lots of, you know, religious arguments about this. This is all about, like, how the Bible was put together, what is considered the canonicity of Scripture. Um, We get very, very, very mixed ideas about Greek and Roman mythology Mm -hmm. um, because they're presented to us as, and this is what happened, and this is the narrative of Greek mythology as it was given to us, and here's Zeus, and here's Hera these things are hardly ever collected as like one set narrative Mm -hmm. in the classical age. Um, When we have a book like Edith Hamilton's mythology, which I loved and grew up on, like that collects a very nice kind of chronological linear history of how these myths fit together. 
none of these myths were ever told at the same time by the same people. Mm -hmm. That's a modern invention. Mm -hmm. And so I remember being a young man, um, probably in high school or college and coming across like the myths that were different from the ones that I knew mm -hmm. from my book. And I was like, well, those aren't real. Yeah. Those aren't the ones that I like. Those yeah. are not the ones that I'm going to like follow. Yeah. And having to learn that like that, that idea of canon doesn't exist. Right. Um, and because I care about myths and I care about all that kind of stuff, like that was really hard for me to learn. And as fans of things, yeah. right? So like if you have a deep attachment to Harry Potter or uh -huh. to Kill a Mockingbird. So one of the things, one of the books that came up as like a fall book to keep an eye out for yeah. is uh, this book called Marilla mm -hmm. by Sarah McCoy. And my mom immediately sent it to me and she was like, are you going to read this? Because she knows I am an avid Anna Green Gables reader. Now mm -hmm. look, I also don't know that I would qualify as a member of the fandom sure. of Anna Green Gables because I'm not sure I'm a great fan of anything. I'm not sure as an INTJ person, right. fandoms appeal to me. Right. Um, but Nor I as an INFJ person. It's yeah, too many feelings. It's too many. Yeah, it's a little too much for me. So I don't know that I'm that attached where I would consider myself a part of a fandom. Sure. But do I love the Anne of Green Gables books? Did I read them religiously as a child? Do I love Ellen Montgomery and, and the story she created? Yes. This book then is based on mm -hmm. Marilla Cuthbert and it's fictional, obviously, because Marilla is fictional. It's a fictional history of Marilla. And I will be honest with you, like even as somebody not in the fandom, I think I look at that and I'm like, well, I might read that, but I think my gut impulse is good for someone else, not for me. I don't need to read mm -hmm. that. And so it's similar to, but maybe I don't, I don't know this one at all, so... Maybe not similar, but what White Sargasso Sea does to Jane Eyre. Yes. It takes this background character, then explains them in such a way that it ultimately becomes a critique of the original yes. text. Which I'm interested yeah. in. Yeah. Totally I love that because I think it. that's all of what medieval literature is. Yeah. It's all just responses to an earlier text and, and we rewriting. see this a ton, I yeah. think, with Jane Austen's literature. I was just going to say that. Um, yeah. With Pride and Prejudice, how yeah. many adaptations of like... Um, Mr. Darcy Vampire. Yeah. But then also like the serious ones that are like, what happened next? The Pemberley books. Yes. Um, all of these things. And look, I don't mind those either. No. I think that's what's so interesting. Like, I don't quite know where I like I fall. that they exist. Yeah. They're not canon. Yes. Because they're not canon. Like the author didn't create them. Right. You can still enjoy them. And yes. you can still pick, you can look at four different novels that people have imagined what happens to... Um, Elizabeth and Darcy. Yeah. Um, after Pride and Prejudice ends. Yes. And you can choose which one is your favorite yeah. and think that's what happened. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah. You can do that. We live in a world that provides you with that many options. Yeah. And you can. What's read... weird is when people fight over which one is is correct. real, which one is true, which one is correct. And none of because them. Because they're are. not. None well, of Jane them. Jane Austen are. didn't create one. No. And, and and this is what gets difficult with J.K. Rowling and Harper Lee, I think. Yeah. Because Harper Lee did create Ghost of Watchmen yeah. in some form. And it depends how we take that. Right. And J.K. Rowling did create Harry Potter. Yes. And now is getting Adding all these things to back world. to us. Yeah. Um, and even, like, there's stuff in The Wizarding World of Harry Potter, the theme park. Yes. That, like, is supposed to be, like, in-universe. Yeah. Like, these things that you experience in the theme park took place in the world of the books. And I'm like, that's too much to keep track of. Yeah. Well, and I think that's where I come across sometimes, too. Like, I didn't mind um, Eligible, the retelling or adaptation uh -huh. of Pride and Prejudice. I don't read a ton of those, but I sure. thought that one was really good. Um, Curtis Sittenfeld, I think, yeah. wrote it. And I loved it. But 
obviously, I mean, that was a very modern retelling of that story. Mm -hmm. I have not read any follow-ups to Pride and Prejudice because, again, I left those characters where I like them. As a reader, too, I've said this before on the podcast, I frequently will read something and I remember how that book made me feel. Mm -hmm. I don't always remember the nitty-gritty details. And that's why I say I'm not a great member of a fandom. Mm -hmm. Even recently, I read that book that was a literary criticism of Little Little uh, Little Women. And I was reading it and I was like, I don't remember that happening in Little Women. And I have reread Little Women multiple Mm -hmm. times. And I was like, I don't think I ever picked up on that. And I think because as a reader, I don't know that I delve into the world as much as some other readers I know do. And I I certainly don't. And even, and I think Jordan is so interesting too. I would want his legal perspective, but you talked about Star Wars. Yeah. And I think he is one of those who like, yeah, he wants it to be true to what he knows because he's read some of the books and so Mm -hmm. he wants it to be true. But I've also seen his eyes glaze over when somebody tries to get into a discussion with him about, and I won't put words into his mouth. Han shot first or any of that stuff. But I think sometimes he's a little bit like, I don't know that he fully cares that much. Yeah. Um, and I think my brother, who's also a fan, is kind of the same way. Like, yeah. they like these for what they are. And you're totally entitled to your yeah. opinion. Um, but whether... God, I think you're right. It's so interesting whether or not something's canon. And J.K. Rowling, we can ask. Harper yeah. Lee, we cannot. Like, Harper Lee, and we're we making assumptions. We can't ask George Lucas anymore because he doesn't own the company. That's right. Um, and I think of Ellen Montgomery. Like, I don't know if she would care that there's a book about Marilla. Like, I think, too, some readers fall under this line of, oh, no. Like, mm-hmm. Ellen Montgomery is rolling in her grave right. because there's a book about Marilla. I don't know that that's true. And I don't care if it's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, I think personally... Um, that these books often, not always, sometimes they're just like essentially fan fiction and like there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Like that has its place. But I think often these books serve a very important function okay. culturally in that, like what I was saying before, they go back and critique the older book. Yeah. White Sargasso Sea is so important because it looks at the racial implications of Jane Eyre that are yeah. in the very, very background of that book. Yeah. But that for, for a 20th century audience are really troubling. Yes. Um, that not enough uh, readers maybe think about. Yeah. And so White, White Sargasso Sea takes that and makes it the center. Yeah. Um, another one is The Wind Done Gone, uh-huh. which is a revision of Gone, Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Um, re-examining it from a different perspective. Yeah. Are these canon? Do they actually contribute to the world of that original text? No. Mm-hmm. But they do offer readers a very important other perspective that yes. I think is sometimes lacking. Yeah. And I think I think that is really valuable and helpful, especially as we move further and further from, yeah. you know, just generationally from the worlds that these early books created. Yeah. Those books are still important. Right. And I don't want us to... To of course, just and chuck them out the door. We'll always have them, right? But I do like the idea that we are always going to be examining them, right? And I like the idea of examining them by taking a minor character yeah. or taking a background thought and maybe weaving a new story that yeah. can help you look at the other one with fresh eyes. Absolutely. The other thing I think is, um, I mean, this is kind of the subject of my dissertation, like mm-hmm. how history has been recorded and how it's different depending mm-hmm. on who's telling it. We do this with historical narratives. Yes, all the time. All the time. Um, and so the chapter I sent off this morning was about um, three different chrono- um, chronicle accounts of King Arthur. And like, they're all different. Mm-hmm. The one that I'm choosing to write about, like this author made up a bunch of dialogue mm-hmm. that did not exist. And he's ostensibly writing history, mm-hmm. which 
13th century history is different from 21st century history. Like, they just have different ideas behind them. But, like, that idea of what is not just canon to a literary work, but what is historically true and verifiable has real implications yes, yes. Um, for who's in power and doing what with it. Yeah. Um, and so I think this conversation is is a really big one. Yeah. Um, it informs my entire field. Like of course what it I does. what I do yeah. um, professionally is is deeply informed by this conversation. And so I was really happy yeah. um, when Allison asked this via email. Um, and to get to talk about this on on the show a little bit. Um, because... Yeah, because I think it's definitely in your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And I think for for us as booksellers, it's something that we talk about with customers, though perhaps not under the same right. title, maybe. Right. Like I don't know that our customers would say, I want to talk about the canon of literature. Right. But I do think we frequently are asking ourselves, I mean, I think I even have customers who are like, should I read this book? Right. Or is it doing a disservice to Jane Austen? And, is and it doing so a service, disservice to her? There are any number of perspectives here, yeah. right? I think these can be fun. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with them when they're just fun. Yeah. I also think they can be sometimes really important. Yes. Um, they can also be terrible. Mm-hmm. These books often are not very yeah, good. Yeah, some are not good. Um, but when they are, they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I encourage everybody to read them and decide what you like for yourself. Yeah, and maybe realize you don't have to change your mind about the no. original work necessarily. No. And I know that sometimes that's hard. Yeah. When you read all of these things J.K. Rowling has said about the Harry Potter series and then go back and read Harry Potter and now you're like caught up in like trying to piece together who was doing what in the background yeah. when, that can be distracting. Yeah. And I encourage you to try, just try not to think about it, although yeah. I know that's difficult. Yeah, and, and don't be afraid. I mean, I love J.K. Rowling, but I don't follow her on Twitter for that reason. Right. Like for me, at least under the Harry Potter world, right. I am very content with those seven books. Yep. I don't mind The Cursed Child. I like the play, although I do have to kind of suspend my disbelief and then like wonder what's canon within the universe of Harry yeah. Potter. Like, that book's been out for two years now. Can we talk about it? I like, think so. Spoiler. No I don't, spoilers. I don't think that daughter is Voldemort and Bellatrix's child. You don't? No. I don't know what I think anymore. I think, I think that she is an orphan who wanted to become something like Harry, this uh-huh. legend, and then like made a narrative for herself that attached herself yes. to these big names in the wizarding world yes. and set herself up as essentially a dark Harry Potter. Yes. That's a satisfying story to me. Yeah. I think it's a better story in yeah. my mind than what was told in that play. And that's the that power. Pr- exactly. That's, power that's interpretation. As, and that's power we're given as readers. Exactly. It's, it's ambiguous in yeah. the play. It, yeah. th- we never confirm anything. That's right. And so it's my prerogative yes. as a reader yes. to say it's not actually canon within the universe that yes. this is established. Yeah. And so I'm going to choose to believe it's not true. And I think many writers want their readers. I, I could be wrong with that, but I think Harper Lee wants us to be active participants in her literature. Yeah. I, I yeah. don't think the intent of Jane Austen was that we were just passive and idly, Mm -hmm. you know, I think they wanted us to be thinking and asking questions and and interacting with their books. And so I think J.K. Rowling, I don't know, but I imagine if asked, she might be like, whatever you think, whatever you, however you would like it to be. Now, I think if forced, she might give an answer, Mm -hmm. but I don't have to take that answer as truth. True. I also think that authors want us to interact with their books, and this is where I'll come down maybe a little negative. Uh, in a more substantive way. Mm-hmm. I don't think J.K. Rowling necessarily cares like what we believe Neville was doing 
No, I don't in, think she does. In the greenhouse in book three. Yeah. Like, that's not the thing authors really care about us yeah. caring about. Yeah. Um, they want us to engage with the ideas. Yes. Not the minutia. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I think the minutia is sometimes very interesting and important. And, and, but and don't let di- it distract you. I was about you. to say, and a distraction. Don't let it distract you from the bigger ideas. Because I think when to, uh, when Ghost Set a Watchman came out, that was, as a bookseller, what was a little bit frustrating is I wanted, and ultimately yeah, I yeah, did get yeah. these really great, rich conversations with my customers. But at first, all of the conversation revolved around, is Atticus still a hero? And it's like, but I don't think, I don't know, we could definitely have a rich conversation about that, but... Ghost at a Watchman was about literary history. Right. It was about... And the publication um, of it was not about a sequel. That's right. It wasn't about <sighs> this this new Atticus who we had to wrap our brains around. So I think, I think you're right. I think we're called to active participation in literature. And I think authors want us to kind of make up our own minds about it. Yeah. And do with their books what we will. Yeah. They've entrusted them to us. And that's the point of reading. Yeah. From the Front Porch is a production of The Bookshelf, an independent bookstore in Thomasville, Georgia. It's produced by me, Annie Jones, and Chris Jensen, and edited by Chris Jensen. If you are interested in purchasing any of the books we've talked about on today's episode, you can do so at www.bookshelfthomasville.com forward slash shop. Thank you, as always, to Forlorn Strangers for the use of our theme music. It's called Bottom of the Barrel from their album, Forlorn Strangers. Learn more at forlornstrangers.com. If you'd like to support From the Front Porch on Patreon and gain access to exclusive bonus content, check us out on patreon.com slash fromthefrontporch. You can also check out our website at fromthefrontporchpodcast.com for web-only content and a full back catalog of our show with detailed show notes and links to further reading. This week in the bookshelf, a funny thing happened. So we have this kid who comes to Storytime every Saturday Brian. Yeah. Okay. Well, he has been coming to Storytime forever. Ever. Yeah. But do you remember early on? He used to hate all. Oh of gosh, them. he would literally. Scream I kid you not. Run. Scream and run and walk up and down our aisle, going, "No story time! No story time!" And this week, actually, the past couple of weeks, he's come in. He's. I think he's in kindergarten or first grade now. Ugh. And he lit right. Time. And he literally walks in. He like opens the door himself. Has it started yet? And he like sticks his little chest out. <laughs> Because he knows we'll wait for him because right. he's a regular. And so I cannot tell you the joy it brings me to have watched this kid who was probably two or three, like yelling up and down the aisle, no story time. And now he like puffs his little chest out and is like, Has we, have we started yet? Like, it's just the cutest him. thing. That's so good. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>